0: A Governess of Distinction by Marion Chesney This book is read by Charlotte Anne Daw About this digital talking book Navigation of this digital talking book is by chapter at the first navigation level. This digital talking book was produced by Visibility Limited formerly the Association for the Blind of Western Australia, in Perth, Western Australia. To support the production of this and other digital talking books, please contact Visibility on Country Code PLUS61, Area Code 08 9311 8202 or by email library at au. Chapter One Even in the hedonistic society of Regency London, Percy Viscount Hunterdon stood out as being more carefree, indolent and pleasure-loving than anyone else among the top thousand. Although apparently destined to eke out his days on a small inheritance, he found he was lucky at gambling very lucky, and was therefore able to live an extravagant life. He was extremely handsome, with golden curly hair, bright blue eyes, and a tall athletic figure, for he boxed and fenced and raced his curricle, finding that a certain amount of exercise was excellent for dissipating the results of the previous night's roistering. As he strolled along the strand one sunny afternoon in the direction of Temple Bar, Nothing disturbed the calm pool of his brain, except for one little ripple, which wondered what on earth old Mr. Courtney's lawyers wanted to see him about. Mr. Mirabel Courtney, he knew, was some very distant relative. He had never even met the old man. But now the lawyers had written a tetchy letter to the Viscount to say that after repeated calls at his house and at his club without success, They suggested that if he wished to learn something to his advantage, then he had better call on them. He finally reached the musty offices of Triggs, Bellman and Broom, and airily announced his arrival to an elderly clerk, who informed the Viscount that Mr. Broom would see him. Mr. Broom was like an elderly tortoise, his thin neck poking out of a painfully starched cravat and high-collared shirt. Old Courtney left me something, has he? Lord Hunterdon demanded gaily. Sit down, my lord, Mr. Broom said severely. There is more to it than that. Isn't there always? The Viscount slumped down in a chair and looked vaguely out of the window. Spare me the Herefores and wherefroms and all that legal jargon, and get to the point. Mr. Broom sniffed loudly to show his disapproval and picked up a sheaf of papers. Mr. Mirabel Courtney has left you his quite considerable fortune Trelawney Castle in Dorset and his estates, he said. Lord Hunterdon blinked in surprise. Well, very kind of him, to be sure. Fetch a good price, I should think. You cannot sell it, Mr. Broom remarked with a gleam of satisfaction in his watery old eyes. In order to inherit, you must live in the castle and make it your home. Also, also, the Viscount echoed faintly. Also, you must take charge of Mr. Courtney's daughters, Amanda and Clarissa, And find them husbands. How can anyone be expected to find husbands for a couple of old maids? A Mrs. Courtney, our 15-year-old twins. Hey, now, that cannot be the case. How old was Courtney when he died? Eighty-six years summers, my lord. Why does everyone always say summers? Why not winters? Anyway, he can't have sighed two teenage misses. Mr. Courtney married a housemaid, one Annie Plumtree, 15 years ago. The lady died giving birth to the twins. Sad, but see here, is that it? I mean, if I don't want to live in the castle and bring these poxy wenches out, I don't get the inheritance? In a nutshell. The Viscount rose and strolled to the door. Then I don't want it," he said cheerfully. "Good day to you, Mr. Broom." In that case," came the old lawyer's voice as the viscount opened the door. "The inheritance will go to your cousin Basil." Lord Hunterdon turned around slowly. "You mean Basil, Devonham, Toad, Devonham?" Precisely, my lord. In that case. I won't say no, but I can't say yes either, not until I think about it. How long have I got? Mr. Broom looked at him maliciously. We have wasted a considerable amount of time trying to get in touch with you, my lord. I think 24 hours would be a fair length of time. Oh, Very well. Lord Hunterdon walked pensively out into the sunshine. How he loathed Basil. Basil Devonham was the same age as the Viscount. Twenty-eight. The Viscount's parents, the Marquess and Marchioness of Derrywell, had always held Basil up to their errant son as a good example. Basil was sober and God-fearing. Basil never gambled or went with loose women. Basil was a good man. And Basil thought so too. He had a slimy, unctuous manner. Although he lived just as much a life of leisure as the Viscount, he always implied that his days were taken up in study or good works. The Viscount turned in the direction of his club. Surely some of his friends could advise him. When he reached the club in St. James's Street, he found he was in luck. Not one, but three of his closest friends were in the coffee room. Lord Charnworth, the Honourable John Trump, and Mr. Paul Jolly. All were about the same age as the Viscount. All were unmarried and all devoted to a life of ease. Here comes Beau, Lord Charnworth exclaimed. He'll cheer us up. Lord Charnworth was a very small gentleman with prematurely white hair. He wore frist, which combined with his small features made him look like a poodle. In fact, there was something doggy about the other two, Mr. Trump being rather like a collie and Mr. Jolly like a bulldog. Can't feel happy, the Viscount drawled, dropping elegantly into a chair. Cursed problem on my hands. Nancy, giving you walking orders, Bo? Mr. Trump asked sympathetically. Nancy was the Viscount's latest mistress. No, but I'm beginning to wish she would walk away from me, the Viscount grumbled. Rapacious, that's what she is. Fact is, I've just been to old Courtney's lawyers. Old Mirabelle Courtney, distant relative, left me a castle, estates, and a fortune. What's so bad about that? Lord Charnworth asked. I've got to live there. Still, not too bad. Lots of us have to languish in the country for the winter. Nothing wrong with keeping your home in London as a townhouse. Wait, there's worse. This old lecher, Courtney, married a housemaid 15 years ago, because, one assumes, he managed to get her pregnant. For she died giving birth to twin girls who are now just 15, and part of the deal is that I have to find husbands for them. I said I wouldn't accept the inheritance, and then I learned that it would go to Basil Devonham. Never, Mr. Jolly growled. Sheer waste of money. You've got to go through with it, Beau. Don't think I can face it, the Viscount remarked. But you don't bring these maidens out yourself, Lord Charnworth exclaimed. Suddenly, you find a governess for them. Bit old for a governess, surely. No, you get one of those dragons who brings misses up to the social mark, sort of advanced governess, a governess of distinction. That's what you ask for. A governess of distinction, the Viscount said, turning the phrase over in his mind. Sounds a good idea, Mr. Trump said. Besides, these lawyers can't go running down to wherever it is to make sure you're actually staying there, hey? Go down, see the gals, get the governess, kiss them goodbye, pick up the money bags, back to town. I suppose I could do that. And if it's a really horrible situation, Mr. Trump urged, why you can tell the lawyers to let Toad Basil have the lot. Serve him right. A smile of relief lit up Lord Hunterdon's handsome features. What a clever lot you are, and you shall have your reward. Champagne by the bucket. A week later, a week of roistering, drinking deep, and gambling hard later, Viscount Hunterdon traveled in the direction of Trelawney Castle. Despite the fact that the hedges were thick and heavy with the leaves and flowers of summer, scarlet poppies, pink and white wild roses, purple and yellow vetch, he felt an odd sense of foreboding which after some thought he put down to indigestion. The hedges gradually fell back, and he found himself riding across wild heathland. He was driving his own traveling carriage laden down with all the comforts he considered might be necessary to smooth his short stay at the castle. The blue sky above became milky, and then darkened to gray. And finally, as he came in sight of Trelawney Castle, a threatening black lit with flashes of lightning. His coachman, who was sitting beside him on the box, crossed himself and said, Looks like the lair of the devil himself. And Trelawney Castle did look grim. It was not that it was a castle with battlements and turrets, although there must have been such a building there at one time to give it the name. Rather, it was a Gothic fright built during the 18th century Gothic revival. It had spires and lancet windows and flying buttresses and gargoyles, and was, the Viscount decided, an architectural mess capable of inflicting damage on the aesthetic soul. He drove past an untenanted lodge, through rusty iron gates and up a long weedy drive, Bordered on either side by an unkempt jungle of undergrowth. As he swept the carriage around to stand in front of the main door, he noticed gloomily that all the windows were of stained glass and that the walls were covered in ivy. A flash of lightning struck down, and the horses plunged and reared, and then came a tremendous clap of thunder. His servants, The coachman, two grooms, and his valet were all whimpering with terror. It was like a scene out of a gothic romance, thought the Viscount dismally. He wondered whether there were headless ghosts. I hate this place already, he said. Don't stand there squawking and shaking. It's only a thunderstorm, announce me. A groom approached the door. There was a large brass knocker in the shape of a devil's head. Another flash of lightning, which flickered over the brass door knocker and seemed to make it come to life, followed by another hellish peal of thunder, sent the terrified servant reeling back. The Viscount had just climbed down from his carriage in time to receive the frantic embrace of his groom, who was babbling that the door knocker had grinned at him. Now, Jiggs, the Viscount said, easing off his servant's clutching hands. You are overset. I will announce myself. Find the kitchens and have some warm ale. Nothing like warm ale for restoring the nerves. He seized the door knocker and began to bang it heartily. The door creaked slowly open, and a fat white-faced butler stood there. He was completely bald. Welcome home, master, he said in a low, sepulchral voice. While his servants still crouched behind him, Lord Hunterdon strolled into the hall and looked around. It was fake baronial and in the worst of tastes. He began to laugh, a merry, infectious laugh. He turned to his servants. We have walked straight into the stage of the Haymarket Theatre, have we not, my boys? Enter ghost stage right. His servants began to laugh as well while the butler stood by, his fat features showing neither interest nor displeasure. Welcome, my lord, the butler said. My name is Dreadwort. The Viscount snickered. The butler went to the fireplace and tugged on a massive bell rope beside it. The staff will wish to pay their respects, my lord. The staff came filing into the gloomy hall and formed a line before the Viscount. He walked down the line, which started with the housekeeper and ended with the lamp boy. It was, however, not a large enough staff of servants for such a place, thought the Viscount, The men's livery was old-fashioned and threadbare, and the women's gowns were worn and darned. The Viscount correctly judged from the poor livery and the state of the grounds that the late Mr. Courtney had been something of a miser. And where are the Mrs. Amanda and Clarissa? He asked. They have retired for the night, Dreadwort said and beg to be excused. Well, I want to meet them, the Viscount snapped. It ain't that late. Fetch them here. May as well get it over with. Show me to some comfortable room and bring me brandy. Mr. Courtney always used the library in the evenings, and I have had a fire lit there. Hey, Dreadwood, you ain't going to turn out to be one of those pesky retainers who want everything to remain the same, I hope. Show the way. The library was a gloomy place, the furniture heavy and Jacobean. A small fire burned in a cavernous fireplace, big enough to roast an ox. Not short of wood, are we? The Viscount demanded. Throw a few trees in here. Bring the brandy and let me get my introductions to the girls over and done with. The butler inclined his head and withdrew. The Viscount paced up and down. He did not like Trelawney Castle. He did not like the gloomy atmosphere. And above all, he did not like this new feeling of responsibility. The door opened and he turned about. Miss Amanda and Miss Clarissa, Dredward announced. The Viscount looked at the twins. And the twins holding hands stared back. Got a governess? He asked. No, my lord, they chorused. The Viscount crossed to a writing desk in the far corner. Well, you're getting one now. Two days later, in an uncomfortable house situated at the end of a damp little village called Gunshot, sat Miss Jean Morrison, enjoying a moment's peace from the hectoring sound of her aunt's voice. Jean felt her young life had been governed by a succession of bullies. Her mother had died when Jean was very young. Her father, a colonel in a Scottish regiment, had sold out and returned to his mountain home to oversee the bringing up of his daughter. To that end, he had hired a formidable governess and had given her free reign. The governess, Miss Tiggs, an Englishwoman, had bullied Jean unmercifully. When the colonel died a year before, Jean had sacked the governess with great pleasure, and because she had hardly any money, had gone to live with an aunt in Edinburgh, in the hope that the aunt would bring her out at the Edinburgh assemblies and find her a husband. But the aunt, Mrs. MacLeod, had wanted Jean only as a companion, and an overworked one at that. Finding she had jumped out of the frying pan into the fire, Jean had written to another aunt, Mrs. Delmar Richardson, in Dorset, and begged asylum. To her delight, she received a courteous letter assuring her of a welcome. With some of the little money she had left, she had taken the long road south, dreaming of happiness. But Mrs. Delmar Richardson was another bully of the chilly grand Dame kind, Jean quickly realized she was expected to wait on the lady hand and foot, to read to her, to walk behind her, carrying her shawl, to play the piano for her, and any number of tiresome tasks that kept her anchored to Mrs. Delmar Richardson's side. Besides, Mrs. Delmar Richardson was ugly, and Jean's one weakness was a craving for beauty. She herself had long given up any hope of growing into beauty. At the age of twenty, she had dark red hair, a terrible thing for any lady to have, green eyes, pale, almost translucent skin, and a neat figure. Her aunt had mercifully drunk too much during the afternoon and had retired to her bed. Jean, who knew there were no novels allowed in the house, settled down instead to read the local papers. That was how she came across the Viscount's advertisement. She read it several times. A governess of distinction was wanted to train two young misses in the social arts. Jean herself had been trained in the social arts in the remote highlands of Scotland, just as if she were about to make her debut at Almack's Assembly Rooms in London. Her heart began to beat hard, and hope dormant for some time, sprang anew. One side of Jean's mind was down to earth and practical, but the other side dreamed of romance. The advertisement stated clearly that all applicants were to apply in writing. Jean quickly decided that if she went there in person, she might secure the job. She put on her bonnet and cloak went down into the village, and asked the road to Trelawney Castle, and learned it was only ten miles away. Without saying a word to her aunt, she rose early the following morning carrying only a small trunk, optimistically planning to send the viscount's servants to collect the rest of her belongings, which she had left packed in her bedroom. If she did not get the position, well, that did not even bear thinking of. Her hopes high, she set out on foot, under a grey and lowering sky. Trelawney Castle, she had learned, was on the coast. Lord Hunterdon had recently inherited it. He was unmarried. Dreams about an unmarried Viscount and a castle happily engaged Jean's thoughts. He would be Byronic and brooding, tortured and miserable, pacing the battlements with a black cloak wrapped around his manly shoulders. He would soften under her influence until one day he would seize her in his arms and cry, Be mine, Jean Morrison. Jean finally reached the deserted lodge and rusty gates. It was all very depressing. She had heard Mr. Courtney was rich, and surely a viscount was rich. Jean had been brought up on the lines of a penny saved is a penny earned, and she had been looking forward to luxurious surroundings. When she came in sight of the house, her heart sank. This was no romantic castle. Instead, it was a gothic monstrosity, dark and sinister. All sorts of doubts rushed into her head. She did not have any references. The impertinence of her action took her breath away. But then behind her was her aunt. Better at least try. She seized the knocker and gave it a good bang, wondering what sort of a household put a brass devil's head on its main door as a knocker. The door creaked open, and Dreadwort stared down at her. Jean. Tremulously presented one of her cards, which had the Highland address scored out, and then the Edinburgh address scored out, and the Gunshot address penciled in. I am come, she said in a shaky voice, in answer to Lord Hunterdon's advertisement. Dredward frowned. He knew of no advertisement. Then he remembered a footman had been sent to deliver a letter to the local newspaper offices. His eyes ranged from her plain bonnet to her buckled shoes. All were of good quality. Advertisement for what, miss? Governess, to be sure, Jean said tartly. It is beginning to rain. Pray allow me to step inside. I will inform his lordship. Dreadwort said coldly, wait here. So Jean waited with her battered trunk at her feet in the great hall, looking in amazement at the fake medieval flags, the suits of armor, the general air of damp and neglect. The great mansion was very quiet. Jean could not understand it. She opened her cloak and squinted down at the watch pinned to her bosom. Ten o'clock. The servants should have been in evidence working about. Perhaps they rose very early indeed to complete their duties. After half an hour, Dreadwort came slowly down the dim wooden staircase. Follow me, he said in a hollow voice. Jean left her trunk in the hall and walked up the stairs after the butler. Various old paintings so dark and dirty that it was almost impossible to make out what they were supposed to be, hung on the walls. The staircase was uncarpeted and not very clean. The drawing room, Dreadwort intoned, throwing open a pair of double doors. Wait here for his lordship. Jean felt a lump rising in her throat. Here was neither elegance nor comfort. The room was cold. The furniture was musty and dusty, as were the curtains. An old game bag lay in one corner and a pile of fishing rods in another. She began to wonder again about this future employer. He could not be either handsome or Byronic. No one with the slightest sensitivity could live in a place like this. He was probably the sort of man who enjoyed cockfights and never washed. A tear rolled down her cheek, followed by another, and she fumbled in her pocket for a handkerchief. Take mine, said a masculine voice, and Jean looked up at the Viscount through a blur of tears. Thank you. She firmly wiped her eyes and stood up and curtsied, and then looked up into the face of the most handsome man she had ever seen. Even in this gloomy room, his hair shone like gold, his eyes were as blue as the summer sea, and his lightly tanned skin without a single flaw. He was wrapped in a glorious oriental dressing gown, and he smelled faintly of lavender water and soap. Why are you crying? His voice was light and pleasant. I was not really crying. Jean lied. Something must have got in my eye. Probably the horrors surrounding you, the Viscount said sympathetically. Coffee is what you need. Strong coffee with a dash of something in it. He tugged the dusty bell rope which came away in his hand. Chuh, he said in disgust. He opened the door and found himself face to face with Dreadwort. Get coffee, brandy, biscuits, the Viscount snapped. At the double. He returned to the drawing room and sat down. So this is the drawing room, he said, looking about him. Dear me, sit down, Miss Morrison, Jean Morrison. And you are come in answer to my advertisement, in which I clearly stated applications had to be made in writing? Yes, my lord. I live quite nearby, and I thought it easier to call in person. He held out a white hand. References? I have not any. Then why should I employ you? Good heavens, the magnitude of the task demands experience. Jean looked at him resolutely. She did not have much hope, but she would fight to stay with this god. I am very well schooled, my lord, in all the social arts. She talked about her upbringing and why she was so eager to escape from her aunt. He looked at her sympathetically. Had a rotten life, he commented. Here is the coffee, put it down on the table next to Miss Morrison, Dreadwort, and leave us. When the door had closed behind the butler, the Viscount said easily, Now, before you pour that coffee, take off your cloak and bonnet and make yourself comfortable. He intended to send her on her way as soon as she had drunk something. He had no intention of hiring a young and inexperienced girl. Jean Morrison obediently swung her coat from her shoulders and removed her bonnet. The Viscount bit back an exclamation. Her hair was red, bright, shining red, that darkish highland color that often seems to have purple lights in it. Jean saw him staring at it and flushed miserably. Neither aunt had let her cut it, and it was now tumbling down her back. I am willing to diet, my lord. No sacrilege, he said faintly, looking in a bemused way at all the waves and curls. He got up, poured a cup of coffee, and added a strong measure of brandy to it. Jean took it doubtfully. I have never drunk spirits before, my lord. She suddenly smiled, a warm, blinding smile. But I am willing to try. The Viscount looked around the bleak room and then back to the glowing little figure of this would be governess. She'd brighten up the place, he thought. Seemed sensible enough. Still. There's a piano over there, he said. Do you play? Yes, my lord. Then play me something. The brandy had gone to Jean's head, and she felt elated and not at all like her usual dull self. She went confidently to the piano and began to play a Haydn sonata, her fingers rippling competently over the keys while the Viscount leaned back in his chair. Odd how a woman at the piano could suddenly make this miserable heap seem like a home, he thought. When she had finished, he quizzed her about her education and learned to his surprise that she could read Latin and Greek and had a thorough knowledge of what was referred to as the masculine sciences, namely mathematics, physics, and chemistry. She then went on to explain that she also knew how to behave in the ballroom, at the dinner table, how to accept or repulse compliments, how to cut people dead, and how to make calls. He made up his mind. I see no reason why you should not be put on trial. But before you make up your mind, you had best meet your charges. He went to the door. As he expected, Dreadwart was standing outside, where he had been listening to every word. Fetch the young ladies here, he ordered, and bring me the account books. The Viscount did not know how much to pay this governess, but he had learned that the twins had had governesses in the past, and so that should give him some indication of what to pay Miss Morrison. Jean waited nervously to meet her new charges. They would, she thought, be very aristocratic, perhaps beautiful, but they were not so very far from her own age, and perhaps they could all be friends. She drank her coffee and brandy in silence while the account books were brought in and the Viscount went through them. This is ridiculous. Come here, Miss Morrison. Jean went and stood behind him as he ran a long finger down the page. Have you ever seen such miserable wages? No wonder the servants are not efficient. Dreadwort! I know you are listening outside. Come in. He handed the account books to the butler. Double all the wages of the staff immediately and order new livery for the men and dresses for the women. A smile dawned on the butler's fat, white face. It creased up until his whole face glowed. Oh, yes, my lord. Thank you, my lord. But everything has to sparkle, mind you. Rotten summer. Fires in all the rooms. Why is there no one in the lodge? Jean asked, emboldened by brandy and success. Mr. Courtney turned them out, Mr. Hannay and his family. And where are they now? In the workhouse, my lord. This is quite dreadful. Get them out of the workhouse as soon as possible. Get builders or whatever you need to repair the place and the gates. I have an agent, do I not? Mr. Peterman over at St. Giles. Get him, I want him now. Very good, my lord. Wicked old man, the Viscount said, meaning Mr. Courtney. He suddenly pasted a strained smile on his face. Why, here are the girls. Girls, make your curtsy to Miss Morrison, your new governess. Jean looked at the twins and her heart sank. They were both small and fat, with black, greasy hair and malicious little black eyes. Their dresses were dirty and they smelled abominable. They curtsied and then stood hand in hand, staring at her. The one with the eyebrows is Amanda, the Viscount said. And Amanda did indeed have black eyebrows across her brow in a straight bar. T'other is Clarissa. Your hair is awfully red, Clarissa said. Her voice had a strong country accent. Your first lesson, Jean said firmly, is not to make personal comments. Perhaps, my lord, the girls will show me the schoolroom, while one of your servants fetches my belongings from my aunt. She is Mrs. Delmar Richardson of Pear Tree's Gunshot. That will be done, the Viscount said. The housekeeper is Mrs. Moody. I will send her to you, and she will show you to your quarters. Girls. Take Miss Morrison to the schoolroom. The girls trudged out, and Jean followed them. They led her up to the top of the house. The schoolroom had a little used look. It was cold and dusty. It contained a teacher's desk and two pupils' desks. We may as well begin by getting to know each other, Jean said. Sit down. Enjoy yourself while you can. Clarissa said, we'll soon get rid of you. Jean ignored that. She opened the lid of her desk and saw that it contained sheets of paper, pens, and ink. She selected two steel pens, a bottle of ink, and two sheets of paper. No, she said, placing everything in front of them. You will both begin by starting to write. A lady should never be rude. They stared at her in dumb insolence. But Jean Morrison was full of unaccustomed brandy, and Jean Morrison was suddenly determined to fight every inch of the way to stay with the golden Viscount. She saw a cane standing in the corner of the room. She picked it up and brought it down with a crash across Amanda's desk. Green eyes blazing, Jean Morrison ordered, Right?